Welcome to the Cloud Pod, where the forecast is always cloudy. We talk weekly about all things AWS, Google, and Azure. We are your hosts, Justin, Jonathan, and Peter. Episode 43, recorded on October 16th. The right to bear arms. Hey guys, how's it going tonight? Excellent, Justin. How are you? Good. I, uh, it's a late night for us here, so I've already had a lovely couple of drinks, but uh, yeah, it'll be, a, it'll be a fun episode for that. Yeah, and I'm mixing it up a bit tonight. I'm drinking the Angry Orchard uh, hard cider for a change, which is uh, it's pretty good. Anyway, happy anniversary. What is it, 17 years? Oh, yes. Thank you very much. Appreciate that. So I should probably fill in the viewers that I am not Peter. Oh, yes. Uh, Peter is not here tonight, so we have uh, brought in front of the show, of course, Ryan. Uh, hi, Ryan. How's it going? Yeah, I forgot to introduce you. You're such a, a regular now that I just... At this, like we're getting comfortable at this point, which is great. Yeah, not too comfortable. <laughs> yeah, like, you know, we haven't known each other for two and a half years already. We think we'd, we think we'd have rapport, but, you know, you get on the podcast and it all falls apart, so... Yeah. It's, how it goes. <laughs> it's all virtual. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, I know what eyes you're giving me at this moment. Like, oh, he's glaring at me through the through the audio. I can tell. That's how it works. <laughs> Maybe. Yeah, it's very judgmental. <laughs> Well, that's dry in general. It's very yeah. Yes, that's a definitely. <laughs> uh, well, did you guys know that uh, this week uh, the reInvent uh, event catalog opened up? Did you guys uh, get into anything or were you waitlisted for all? I'm mostly waitlisted, but I did get into like two or three, which is a high bonus from, from the last several years I've tried. <laughs> <laughs> it was pretty good, but I feel like there's so many sessions between uh, 10 a.m. and 11 a.m. On the, on the first day. It was uh, it's pretty frustrating. There was a very high quantity on Tuesday, Thursday, or Tuesday, Wednesday that I was like, why do I have so much overlap? I did, I did sign up for Bingo on the wait list today just because it sounded interesting. I was like, what, is, what does Amazon Bingo look like? So was, oh, wow. Sort of curious. I, I think it's whole hangovers from my, my recent cruise where we played a lot of Bingo. I was like, oh, I'll try that out. But yeah, no, I, I did pretty well. Uh, I got into a bunch of container stuff and a bunch of Kubernetes courses, so I was, I was pretty happy. But if uh, you haven't gotten your registrations done yet, uh, you're definitely going to be on a wait list. <laughs> so <laughs> do that sooner than later. But, you know, as you go through the week, uh, by the time we get to Wednesday, my schedule's irrelevant anyways. So, so many other <laughs> things have happened that I'm more interested in. So I don't show up to half my sessions. I was interested in hearing about Amazon's approach to running a service-oriented org. And I did get into the deep dive on CDK because, you know, we need ammo for when uh, we get Ben Kehoe on the show. <laughs> but I'm, I'm really hoping there's some last-minute sessions around the new services or features to fill up kind of the second half of the week. Hopefully. They did, a, they did make some changes this year. We typically have done a lot of EBCs. And, uh, you know, they cut those back this year, so they're only allowed to do two or three per company. Uh, so that's a little bit of a bummer. But, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll make it up with other fun things. Maybe we'll do a podcast meetup or something. And, and if people are interested in that, definitely uh, send us a note uh, on Twitter or on our contact forum and say, yeah, a meetup would be great. We would definitely be open to doing that. So Cool. All right, well, let's get into the, uh, the news. Uh, Amazon Firewall Manager uh, now supports VPC security groups, which is what I would have thought a, a firewall manager would have done day one. Uh, but it did not. So as of October 10th, you can now define, manage, and audit organization-wide policies for the use of VPC security groups. Uh, you can use these policies to apply security groups to specified accounts and resources, check and manage the rules used in the security groups, and to find and then clear up unused and redundant security groups. Uh, so this is actually starting to get uh, to be a product that I can actually use. Yeah. Now I just have to decide whether I want to undo two years of my own automation to do these exact same thing. <laughs> <laughs> or do I... Yeah. No, this is long overdue. I'm excited to see them do this. Uh, it's one of those things that really happy to see them provide 
you know, anyone who's adopting this can start, you know, across multiple accounts, provide their own security group, and it's fantastic. Yeah, I think it'd be useful for things like the Route 53 health checks, where the, the source IPs are potentially one of hundreds of IPs globally, which you need to allow through to your applications. Um, and you don't have to manage those in every single account or every single region even, or even every single VPC. So being able to push those out from a central location is, is going to be great. But I was especially pleased to see that uh, it also supports notifications on um, change of any of these firewall rules. So you know, if, if, uh, if an attacker did manage to make it in and, and change any of these things, then you, you have a way of getting visible into that. Uh, it is interesting that only a single account can be designated as the uh, firewall admin account, uh, and this, that account has the permissions to deploy the WAF rules, the shield advanced protections, and security group rules across the organization. I do hope that at some point they kind of get that federated out so I can give the security team maybe access to some parts of it, and then a network team the other access parts or, or some other combination of splitting those rules out across different organizations. No. Uh, well, if you've been uh, super excited about the C5 instances with uh, up to 100 gigs of networking, uh, Amazon's pleased to tell you now you can get them on the M5 and the R5 instances. Uh, this now allows you to, depending on the instance size, get up to at least 100 gigabytes uh, per second of networking. Uh, now, like for example, on the M5 8x large, it doesn't mean 100 gigs. It means on a, without the N designation. So this is the M5 versus the M5N 8x large. Uh, you get 10 gig on the normal, and you get 25 gigabits per second on the M5N. Uh, so that's a pretty big enhancement. For that additional bandwidth, you'll be paying about an additional $200, uh, $1389 for the M5N versus $1128 uh, for the M5 8X large. That's $200 per month, too, which is eh, it's fairly reasonable if you consider the fact that Amazon's rolling out racks of these things to support the backbone network to these. It's cool if you need that kind of bandwidth performance. I guess the intention for this kind of bandwidth is not so much um, pushing you know, this traffic out to the internet or to clients on the internet, but um, uh, for moving large data sets around for machine learning and uh, things like that. Taking data to S3 and yeah. back, et cetera. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Or cluster, yeah, between clustered machines, you know, if you're thinking like an organized storage containment. It's, uh, these are nice, though. If you definitely need them more bandwidth, especially to things like S3, uh, this is definitely a nice improvement, something that some people desperately need uh, for their data workloads. Moving on, the uh, as you guys know, Jonathan's favorite instance type, the A series, uh, has <laughs> new <laughs> has been out for a little while now. And they now have a new bare metal version of this. This is the A1.metal. Uh, these instances enable ARM developers to build and test natively on ARM-based infrastructure in the cloud with no more cross-compilation or emulation required. Uh, this is good for applications that require physical resources and low-level hardware features such as performance counters uh, that are not supported in virtualized environments. Yeah, I read they had support from uh, Ubuntu, Red Hat, SUSE, Debian, and of course Amazon, sorry, Amazon, Amazon Linux too, <laughs> as well as ECS and EKS. Um, but I think uh, I know mentioned earlier in the year one of the predictions I had for Google is that they were going to announce ARM support in in uh, the Google Cloud, and they didn't. And I, I was surprised because uh, it's such an enabler for Android application development. And uh, if you have bare metal instances now, you can deploy um, ARM-based VMs, and of course you can run um, Android operating system in those and uh, do either testing or uh, development work. So it's pretty cool. They are not the biggest boxes. Uh, they are 16 vCPUs and 32 gigs of memory, and it costs you right around uh, $300 a month. I guess some people still want bare metal for performance reasons, although with a Nitro hypervisor, the the performance of bare metal versus virtualized servers have, have really converged, and it's very hard to, to justify running bare metal for performance reasons anymore. Yeah, I just haven't had a use case in years where I care that much about that level of performance, where I need to eke every little drop out. And so it's at this point, like, you know, because things are 
horizontally scalable and you know, I just don't need to maximize per box the amount of performance I can get out of these things. And so like changed, you know, the design of certain applications and definitely changed the way I do business. I feel like the use cases are more uh, compliance related than they are performance and eking out every spare bit of uh, silicone from those servers. I think it's more about, you know, all these these risks of uh, hypervisor exploits, things like that, which aren't really a factor with, you know, with the Nitro hypervisor anyways. But, you know, they're just things that, you know, people out there who sped FUD in the industry about virtualization and cloud um, are saying out there in the market. I think most of the vulnerabilities were, but not so much hypervisor vulnerabilities as, um, you know, flaws in CPU design and, and uh, execution pipelines and things. I mean, the, the hypervisors can go some way to, to resolving those, or at least protecting the VMs from, from some of those issues, but not all the way. So I assume it's it's an answer to those people who are super paranoid, the government, high security scenarios, uh, maybe even healthcare in some cases, that gives you an option that you can say, look, it's compliant because it's completely dedicated to me. So maybe it makes sense for them, or maybe it's something that you, you get some instance like this, you run Firecracker on top of it, and you do micro VMs of your own management, um, or maybe even VMware if you want to do that to yourself. Jeff Barr has a, a new blog post out, out about the uh, journey the Amazon consumer business, as all we know it as the store, uh, has taken to move <laughs> off Oracle databases. Uh, this was talked a lot about a lot, quite a bit last year with Warner's keynote talking, I think, about AWS and maybe Amazon.com specifically. Uh, but then, you know, it's taken them several years to move off of uh, Oracle and move on to Amazon native database technologies. Uh, you know, they go in to talk about some of the different things they had to do. And uh, they had over 100 teams in the Amazon's consumer business participating in the migration, including well-known brands such as Alexa, Amazon Prime, Fresh Kindle, Music, Audible, Twitch, Zappos, and many, many more. Uh, and as they do this final database, uh, they do admit that they still have some third-party apps that still require Oracle, though, and have not been migrated. But anything that Amazon has built, uh, apparently, has now been moved off of Oracle. Uh, and the migration was uh, pretty large in size. Uh, 75 petabytes of internal data stored in over 7,500 Oracle database instances uh, moved over to DynamoDB, Aurora, RDS, and Redshift. Uh, this reduced their database cost by over 60%, on top of the heavily discount rate they already paid to Oracle. Uh, and they actually note in the article that most customers see a 90% savings. And then the latency of consumer-facing apps was reduced by about 40%, and switching to managed services reduced database admin overhead by over 70%. So that is a huge project. <laughs> I can see why it took them many, many years. Yeah, those are just staggering numbers. Just, you know, the admin overhead, you know, the the amount of discount, it is crazy to think about an undertaking of that size. Yeah, I think so. the admin overheads maybe cheating slightly because they've, they've kind of moved that work from Amazon.com to web services. And I'm, like, I'm sure most of that's automated at this point, but you know, Amazon are paying AWS, I would expect, for, for the service. So, And I'm pretty sure they get a good discount. I mean, how many millions and millions of dollars do they pay per month just in Oracle fees at 7,500 instances? I can't even imagine. <laughs> so the other question that they uh, they talked about in the blog post was that uh, their database teams uh, now can now focus on doing a better job of performance monitoring and query optimization, um, all with the goal of letting them deliver better customer experience. And then they gave a couple examples of their uh, like the advertising business after the migration. The team was able to double their database fleet size and their throughput in minutes to accommodate peak traffic courtesy of RDS. And another team, the wallet team, migrated more than 10 billion records of DynamoDB, reducing latency by 50%, operational cost by 90% in the process. So overall, this is a really great use case. And you know, if you've been talking about doing a multi-year Oracle rewrite uh, and you didn't have the numbers to back it up, uh, this <laughs> might be a good uh, case study for you to use. Yeah, I can I can't imagine that Oracle's very happy about this press release just because of that. Just some of the numbers here are crazy, like 50% redu reduction of latency, like that's nuts out. 
Well, moving on to uh, Amazon. For open source projects, they have now given you promotional credits. Uh, so this is if you are um, using Amazon Web Services for CI/CD capabilities, performance testing, upstream testing, or storage of artifacts uh, on S3 specifically. Uh, you can now get funding for your open source project. Uh, many, many projects, including Adopt Open JDK, and many more taking advantage of these credits. And uh, the one they're really proud about, they actually did a separate press release on, which is the new sponsorship of the Rust project. That's really cool, they're sponsoring Rust. Um... I mean, it's, it's known for it's easy to maintain um, code base, it's thread safe, it's fast. But, and it's seen a huge adoption recently by Google, uh, Mozilla, and even Microsoft. Um, and I guess, I mean, even considering Rust as a, a runtime for Lambda, but even more than that, services like EC2 and S3 and, and even the Lambda service um, have been using Rust to, to help orchestrate some of the, the uh, back-end operations like uh, testing and uh, artifact management. And uh, not to mention Firecracker too, another open source service. And it's good to see that Amazon are uh, sort of funding some of these projects for uh, a year at a time. You know, they don't, you don't have to keep going back to them for money every month or every quarter. Or so at least you can get some, some planning done and, um, and sort of be productive still without having to worry about when the next bill's gonna come. Yeah, they did say that they uh, won't retroactively apply these credits. So it does, you definitely have to be using AWS today. Uh, you have to be current on your bills and you have to be um, using it for a set of use cases. But it's a very simple um, application process. There's a form you fill out and then you'll get response within uh, 12 to 14 days um, if you'll get uh, accepted to the program. So uh, pretty great. Hey, everyone. Jonathan here. I just wanted to take a minute to thank the cloud consulting gurus at Foghorn for helping make the cloud pod possible. These folks truly get it. Cloud consulting experts since 2008, they are premier tier partners with AWS, Google Cloud Platform Silver, and Microsoft Azure partners. From multi-cloud to containers to moving full production workloads to the cloud under the tightest compliance, Foghorn's team of full-stack cloud engineers have been there, done that, gotten the t-shirt, and are ready to share their experience with you. If you're in the market for some talent to supplement your team, visit www.fogops.io slash thecloudpod www.fogops.io slash the cloud pod. Foghorn, the promise of cloud delivered. Well, I think last week we talked about um, Oracle finally reaching their FedRAMP uh, uh, status with the government. And so AWS decided to announce uh, a couple things they got. So a FedRAMP uh, joint operating agreement for high for the GovCloud, as well as several new moderate provisional authorizations across 18 services. Uh, so FedRAMP... Uh, Moderate now supports six additional services, including CloudFront, Poly, WorkDocs, Workspaces, DirectConnect, and Service Catalog, bringing the total to uh, 48 services you can use in FedRAMP Moderate. And then 14 new services in government, uh, GovCloud for FedRAMP High, including API Gateway, CloudWatch, CloudWatch Events, ECR, ECS, EFS, Elasticsearch, Inspector, Poly, CodeDeploy, Config, DirectConnect, Lambda, and Stuff Functions, bringing the total to 43 for High. Uh, so they uh, laughed in the face of Oracle's, uh, I think it was seven services <laughs> they announced last week. Uh, so uh, well done, AWS. Yeah, and these services are really the ones which help drive adoption of their other services too. I was surprised to see DirectConnect. Yeah, or that DirectConnect first instance would have been there a long time ago. Yeah. yeah, I wonder how much of this is just a matter of like process, you know, to get these things, you know, because it takes time to get these things certified and get these reviewed and audited. And so I wonder if that's exactly what's going on here. It takes a lot of process, a lot of evidence. You know, you have to have a bunch of documentation put together. Then you have to have an agency sponsor the use of the service. And so until you have an agency who wants to use something like Poly, 
Um, you can't just get it added to FedRAMP high until you have that use case uh, that they can actually come in and audit against. So there's there's lots of things like that that get them into being a FedRAMP certified company. Uh, and it's a very complicated process and multi-year process for many, many companies to achieve uh, FedRAMP compliance. Well, Google has uh, some new training for you. Uh, if you're looking at making the decision uh, to use the cloud, they want you to choose it on your terms, and so they're providing a range of computing architectures to meet you where you are. Uh, in practice, this means choosing typically between Google Compute Engine and uh, Google Com Kubernetes Engine. Um, and the decision between compute resources and containers looks very different, and that's why Google is now providing you two architecture training paths available on demand or via classroom training, and architecting with Google Compute and architecting with Google Kubernetes. Uh, looking at these two classes, they're relatively similar uh, in the first section where they just basically give you basic GCP capabilities, uh, and then they deep dive into things like load balancers, auto-scaling VMs, and GC GKE networking and persistent storage, for example. Um, but overall, I think it's interesting that they've made this distinction that it's either compute or it's Kubernetes, it's not really both. Uh, and I really kind of see it as a both uh, today, but what do you guys think? It's definitely fascinating to, to make that kind of clean cut one or the other. I mean, it's... I sort of see why you might split this off just to, to specialize in the, the, the compute engine versus the Kubernetes engine, just because Kubernetes has a lot of these functionalities built into it. But I do, yeah, I sort of... I squint at the... At the uh, at the need to s separate these two like that, where it's like, I feel like this is, you need to know both these concepts. You need to know which workload is, is better for the, the right job. And it's, it is interesting. Yeah, I agree with that, Ryan. Um, I guess it makes sense if you're, if you're just starting out in the cloud journey and you don't have anything in cloud and you, you're going to go natively to, to containers, um, then that's, that's fine. But if you're an enterprise and you've already got existing workloads, I mean, in your offices or in data center somewhere, then you're never going to move straight to Kubernetes. So you're going to need both and to separate them is, uh, seems like, seems kind of odd. Definitely. I think it depends on the type of company they're going after. And if you're going for more, you know, greenfield applications, more startup-y type companies, then, you know, making this choice is important. Or I think if you're going after enterprise, I think you kind of have to do both and be more hybrid in that nature as well. Yeah, Definitely. Google has released a new uh, security health analytics capability. Uh, this is in beta today. It's a security product that integrates directly into the Cloud Security Command Center, or the Cloud SEC, as they call it. Uh, security health analytics help you identify misconfigurations and compliance violations of your GCP resources and take action on them. Uh, they gave you a nice case study in this article uh, from AirAsia. And then we have a nice quote here from uh, Muhammad Faiz bin Azmi, Information Security Automation Solution Architect at AirAsia. Being able to go to the new security health analytics dashboard eliminates the guesswork of what we have it running and if it is secure. Now, anyone on our team, even non-security professionals, can go to this dashboard and see a list of the misconfigured assets and compliance violations across all of our GCP resources. We can also see the severity of misconfigurations, which help us prioritize our response. Security health analytics has really helped us reduce the amount of time we spend trying to figure out what's wrong with our resources. It's allowed us to use our time more effectively to identify and resolve more security issues than we could before. This is one thing I notice is a trend. It's just the Google services seem to be offering a lot of native security aspects that, you know, traditionally with Amazon and Azure, you have to have a third party suite kind of offer the same sort of product. So this is very fascinating to see how much they're cutting into some of the, you know, vendors market share with these things. So as far as, you know, visibility, not all the other hyperscalers provide this. So this is great. I mean, anything that improves security, I like. I think I'd rather solve a lot of these problems at deploy time rather than waiting for things to be in production before you you kind of spot that they're, they're non-compliant with any of these um, uh, benchmarks that you're trying to meet. 
but uh, I, mean, I guess there's always there's always a case for you know production changes happening either by accident or because of uh, attackers. Well, I mean, as Oracle will tell you, uh, compliance violations are happening because of humans, and so you know clearly the humans are making all the problems, and so if you only allow yourself to be detecting the the problems, then you know you're still vulnerable. So. Mm. With all respect to Larry, Ellison, and Oracle, um, they really have no business deciding who should or should not have access to my data. That's that's not one of their concerns. There's a place for detect and remediate, and there's a place for prevent. Yeah. <laughs> and then I think this is one of those areas where you're doing detect and remediate. Um, it's definitely not a prevention product. It's not something that's going to prevent you from doing the bad thing. And I think it's a combination of both pieces you need to be really successful. Mm -hmm. Um, but you know they were a little bit weak on that back end side where detect and remediate, and so I'm glad to see something in the space for them. Yeah, because uh, you're definitely not seeing Palo Alto and others uh, run to go fill this in their product line for the Google side. They see them fixing Azure, but not. Uh, I, I don't see Google as much in those announcements from those guys. Moving along to our friends up in Redmond uh, at Azure, uh, in CIS as well, uh, the Azure Security Foundation's benchmark uh, for CIS is now open for comment. Uh, of course, security best practices are the best way to speed up securing your cloud deployments. Uh, and as an Azure customer, you can leverage this understanding by using security recommendations from Microsoft to help guide your risk-based decisions as they're applied to specific security config settings. As such, uh, Azure has partnered with the Center for Internet Security, or CIS, uh, to create the CIS Microsoft Azure Foundation Benchmark Version 1. Uh, this has been out for a couple weeks here now, and they are looking for feedback from you, the customer, that you can provide via a simple email form uh, or feedback uh, through their website. Eventually, this data will be integrated into the Azure Security Center and their impact surface on the Azure Security Center sc uh, Secure Score and the Compliance Dashboard. So if you disagree with something they're already showing you in those uh, secure Security Center, you should probably comment now before it's too late and you're now fixing all the things uh, that this uh, CIS benchmark will detect. It's great that they're they're offering this. I think it's, you know, it's interesting they're putting it for a comment. I, I, I find it you know, like the security benchmarks aren't necessarily cloud specific, but I, I, it's one of those things where it's sort of they tailor these things a little bit towards implementation as they as you move from the same kind of generic benchmarks and then how you apply them to specific providers. These things help people stay secure, so there's nothing wrong with it. Yeah, I do think you'll start seeing CIS benchmarks get more and more specific towards different cloud providers' capabilities. Uh, I think they've all kind of started out very generic, and from there they kind of get, they start to get uh, you know more full feature. They get more embedded into the technology available to you to secure your infrastructure, and they'll get more cloud specific over time. But yeah, initially they're going to be very broad. Initially, I wonder why they were asking for feedback on these things, but then I mean I, I guess the feedback can not just come from individuals or organizations, but um, even government bodies like NIST. And uh, I, I guess it was NIST who influenced Microsoft to change their password policy after years and years and years of requiring or recommending even password regular password changes. You know, NIST, NIST said, no, that's not the best plan. Just give people strong passwords and to discourage people from, you know, writing on post-it notes onto the keyboard. It's also one of those things, like, as anyone who has applied the CIS benchmarks and has completely broken their app by, like, trying to harden their server, like, it's, I think these things are good to, to socialize. And not all these things are are good for every customer and, and, you know, it is a benchmark. It's not a rule. And I think they're very, they're very specific about that intentionally. And so it's the more they can get that feedback from customers, those breaking changes, the more that they can factor that into whether this is needs to be a benchmark or it's just a nice to have, I think it's a good thing. You're definitely right there. Some of the, some of the CIS uh, recommendations are kind of weird. Like 
in Linux obscuring the um, you know the Etsy issue file or the release file, so uh, attackers would find it harder to figure out what they'd broken into. But of course, that broke installers, which relied on that information to decide where to put config files and uh, where to deploy binaries and things. So yeah, yeah, it definitely makes sense. That's great. Uh, the Azure Monitor Service has added uh, the new Worker Service SDK for ASP.NET and ASP.NET Core Metrics. Uh, this is uh, part of Application Insights, and this empowers developers and IT pros to observe, debug, diagnose, and improve their distributed services hosted on the cloud, on-premises, and through hybrid solutions. The uh, new apps insights for ASP.NET Core.2.8 uh, for web apps, and the same for the .NET Core Worker Service 2.8 uh, for non-web delivers new value to developers, including support for more app types, new alertable metrics, support for ASP.NET 3.0 Core, and cross-vendor distributed tracing. Uh, and the one part that was kind of interesting about this was the event counters uh, are now available for new metrics. So they include metrics such as time and garbage collection, allocation rates, and thread pool queue length. Uh, but they've now made event counters uh, make Windows performance counters now cross-platform, uh, including Linux, macOS, and Windows. So if you ever really hated Windows Perfmon, uh, you can now have it for Linux and macOS. <laughs> so you're welcome. <laughs> uh, as well as they are adopting the uh, W3Trace context, uh, which is uh, supported by a growing list of vendors, including the Open Tracing Framework uh, and many more. I mean, the traces will propagate across services and with other app performance monitoring vendors uh, who recognize the standard in the future. So that is nice interoperability that uh, Microsoft is bringing to the table overall. Uh, of course, it's weighed down by Perfmon first, but that's okay. <laughs> I have nothing. <laughs> Windows, Windows, stuff I don't understand, Windows. Yes, yes. Well, you know, like, you know how you got top uh, on Linux? <laughs> this is a much worse version of that. <laughs> or if you if you ever you remember Xtop, I don't know if you guys ever support HPUX, we had Xtop, which was the visual version of top. Uh, it's sort of like Windows Perfmon kind of. Yeah. That's, the closest I, that's the closest I can get to it. Uh, there you go. Ooh. All right. Well, that's it for new news this week. Uh, you know, move us into the lightning round. Thank you, Justin. And I decided to stand in for Peter today because... I probably wasn't going to win anyway, so <laughs> let's start with Amazon ECS add support for G4 instance types. Luckily, not the G7, which is not being held uh, at Trump's estate. Not at Trump's estate, <laughs> yeah. Amazon Elasticash launches self-service updates for Memcached and Redis cache clusters. Does this mean I don't have to update my cache, or and it'll just auto-do it for me? I mean, self-service tells me that you have to do it now. Before, yeah. they, did it, they did it automatically before, but now it's your your decision when to do it. Oh, this is a degradation, for sure. <laughs> for sure. Amazon Inspector adds CIS benchmark support for Windows 2016. I'm, like, hesitating to make a joke about a three-year-old operating <laughs> system right now. Just because I have, like, I have to support this so much in my day job. I'm like, I want to make fun of this, but oh, the reality is worse. <laughs> I, I do think Windows, uh, I think there's a new Windows server version very soon coming down the pipe. So I'm glad that the CIS benchmark is so cutting edge and so secure that it's, <laughs> you know, not even ready for the next version of Windows. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, the AWS console mobile application launches federated login for iOS. <laughs> I appreciate that they've now made the login process the same, but it'd be nice if they actually had features in the mobile app that I actually wanted to use. Are you an Apple user, Ryan? I am an Apple user, uh, but I wouldn't even bother to try to <laughs> log into the console with my iOS device. Absolutely not. I've never tried to use it for work with the with the SAML and the federated login for yeah. our work, but I use it for my personal account, and it's nice uh, if I want to reboot my EC2 instance. That's about all it can really do. 
<laughs> so it's a you're not missing anything if you're on Android. But I think I think they do have a version of this for Android. I just don't think the Android version supports federated login yet. So that'll probably be an announcement in like two weeks from now. They'll be like, AWS console now supports uh, Android <laughs> federated login. <laughs> Watch out for episode forty-five. There hey. you go. We're seeing the future. Yes. Amazon RDS enables detailed storage backup billing. For a managed service, you would hope that it would give you detailed backup information and how it's built, but, you know, whatever. <laughs> Especially details on how much money they're charging. Like, I, I, Yeah. This makes me think, like, what was it before? Oh, no. <laughs> they were just uh, billing you for the pretend backups before. <laughs> so now, now you can detail, uh, analyze it. Moving on. Amazon ECS now supports ECS image SHA tracking. Like, okay. I'm, I... I ECS is supporting the SHAs in ECS, or is it the SHA from the registry? I'm confused by this title altogether. I have no idea. I'm just a guy who reads the titles. The SHA. <laughs> dun, dun, dun. Nice. <laughs> Amazon Guard Duty adds three new threat detections. S3 Block Public Access Disabled, S3 Server Access Logging Disabled, and metadata DNS rebind. I thought they had these already because that was I thought the very first thing they came out with with threat detections was public buckets, but I guess I guess not. And then metadata metadata DNS rebind. Uh, hey, Capital One, how's it going? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> What's in your wallet? Oh, it's a USB stick with a hundred million customer records on it. <laughs> <laughs> your metadata from your DNS. That's what it is. We're in the finishing stretch. Amazon API Gateway now supports access logging to Amazon Kinesis data firehose. I got nothing. Sorry. Yeah. I, I was like API. Yeah. No, I don't, I don't know what any of these things do. That's fine. <laughs> Either do we. <laughs> <laughs> There's a new digital course on Coursera, AWS fundamentals, migrating to the cloud. Maybe not so new. Amazon's been preaching the migration story for mm. five years now. I mean, forever. You don't, this is the first time they thought to themselves, you know what? A digital course would make sense for this concept. You know there's a new customer who is just like, huh, new course. How do I do okay. this? I, oh, I, I would also like to know. Thank you. And if you're listening to our podcast, we're here to help you. Yeah. <laughs> Amazon Redshift improves performance of inter-region snapshot transfers. I think no matter what, if you're trying to do snapshot transfers, it's too long. Definitely. <laughs> like, has there that's ever true. been one where you're like, oh, that's, no, that was way faster than I expected? No, it's tap, tap, tap on the desk. Like, please be done. Please be done. I just say that's coffee time. Like, that's, that's time to go get coffee while I wait for the transfer. <laughs> well, don't forget if it's AWS, we don't drink coffee. We drink Coretto. <laughs> Only two to go. AWS code pipeline enables setting environment variables on AWS code build build jobs. This is such a uh, fundamental feature that's been missing that I that I'm I'm struggling for words. Like it's you know, of course you want through your pipeline to to traverse through all these things, set your environment variables on your build jobs. The co the product managers clearly saw GitHub Actions and went, "Oh crap! Better get these out there real quick." Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, even before you know, command line parameters, environment variables, with a way to pass the parameters to your applications. I mean, it's probably been like 40 years by now. <laughs> Any kind of customization. Yeah. Yep. This is one of those things they, they announced the feature and I'm like, wait, that, that wasn't there. <laughs> like, <laughs> you, How did I use this? <laughs> <laughs> which also would have been what you said when you, when you beta tested it. You're like, oh, I can't do what I actually need to do. And you're like, then you put it on the shelf for six months and they announced the feature. And you're like, wait, it didn't already do that? Well, no, yeah. of course it didn't. We now analyzed it six months ago. We said it doesn't work. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> we just forgot because there was a thousand other releases between then and here. And finally, Amazon QuickSight announces data source sharing, table transpose, new filtering, and analytical capabilities. I mean, the basic concept of a reporting engine is to do filtering, so I guess, yay. Yep. Yeah, I would also like it to have analytical capabilities. Yeah, so I'm a little confused. Didn't it have that before? It does support uh, spice dashboards. I don't know what that is, but it's spicy. Who doesn't like hot sauce? Especially in your reports. <laughs> and that's it for the lightning round. Um, I would have liked to give myself the point for Coretto. I would have loved to have given Ryan the point for the hot sauce in the reports, but Justin takes it. Ryan and I can both say, ah, but sure. That's like a de facto at this point. I know. Yeah. Yeah, I feel the same way. <laughs> Jonathan's been coming back. Like he was he down. Is. He was down like eight to to fourteen, yeah. like four, five weeks ago, and now he's up to eleven versus sixteen. <laughs> so, you know, he's he's coming right back. Now he was he wasn't in the game today, so it's unfair. But yeah, he probably, he probably would have had something quippy and would have won if he could have scored himself. Uh, well, since Peter made the rules. You know, we can't do that. Well, since Peter's not here, maybe I edited something funny in. You'll never know. Unless you listen. <laughs> well, thanks, guys. And that's the Week in Cloud. Yeah, that's it. That's everything. Well, we will be back uh, next week as usual. And if you have not got your registration done for reInvent, it's too late. You're on the wait list. So <laughs> go get on the wait list at least. Hopefully you can get into some sessions uh, for reInvent coming up very soon. And again, if you do uh, are interested in meeting the guys at uh, reInvent, we will probably do a meetup. On one of the evenings, uh, we have not yet decided what that will be uh, or where, but we will keep you guys posted on our Twitter um, and here on the CloudPod as we head into prediction shows and a couple other things that are coming up uh, in the next few weeks as we get closer to the Thanksgiving holiday. So get your predictions ready, Jonathan and Ryan. Wait, do I have to do it or is this is clear? Well, you're just, just going to judge Peter us later. Yeah. No, exactly. This is, yeah. I'm, much, I'm much more comfortable like quarterbacking this from my armchair. Yeah, but yeah, you need to prepare to to keep us honest. So it's, <laughs> it's an important job, and as you've seen from the dialogue on the show, that keeping us honest is the most important part. <laughs> Obviously, yes, yes. Well, we will talk to you next week. Good night. Excellent. Good night. And that is the weekend cloud. We'd like to thank our sponsor, Foghorn Consulting. Subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts, and tweet us your feedback at hashtag thecloudpod. Or join our Slack channel, go to our website, thecloudpod.net, for sign-up instructions.